There's a whole script here. I could just do it from this. It's brilliant. <laughs> hey, they've done great, haven't they? Uh, they're working Rihanna hard tonight, but uh, she's, she's done a superb job. So isn't that refreshing? Really brilliant. And uh, thank you, Abigail, for your prayer. She's a woman of great faith because she's talking about the wisdom that I'm going to share with you. But uh, we can see what happens from that as well. Right, right, good to be here with you tonight, and especially uh, to have a service led by these expert people here. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, as, as, as we read earlier on. Um, Colossians 1. You've started this series. Uh, I'm not sure what's been said about Colossians yet, but uh, I'll just, I'll just uh, uh, say a bit about the background. And if you've heard it before, then obviously you, know, you needed to be told a second time. There was once a preacher called W.W. Faraday who used to come to preach a lot in our uh, church in St. Monans in Scotland where I grew up. And uh, in his declining years, he became a little bit forgetful. And uh, once he, he turned up on a Sunday morning and preached exactly the same message that he'd given three weeks before. And one of the young men was bold enough to say to him afterwards, um, well, Mr. Faraday, that was exactly what you said three weeks ago. And Faraday wasn't... Uh, a bastard totally just looked at him under his beetling eyebrows and said, Well, brother, the Lord must have known you weren't listening the first time. So, <laughs> anyway. so what do we know about Colossae, uh, this uh, city that uh, Paul is writing to here? It's a small city. Paul wrote lots of his letters to big places like Rome, the one we were thinking about this morning. Romans was written to the capital city of the Roman Empire. About the same time as Colossians, Paul wrote Ephesians, and that was written to the second biggest city in the Roman Empire. But he didn't always write to the big places. And Colossians was a fairly small city. Paul was probably, I reckon, in prison in Ephesus when he wrote the letter. And uh, Colossae is about 60, 70 miles down the road from there, out in the countryside. When, with a name like Colossae, you expect something colossal and massive, don't you? But actually, it's got nothing to do with colossal things. There was a, a, a statue in those days called the Colossus of Rhodes, which was a massive statue, and it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. But that was nothing to do with Colossae, and the name seems to have come from a kind of cloth that they made in Colossae and sold. So it was a very big place. It was one of three small churches in the same locality. If you zoom in on the area of Colossae, you'll see there's Hierapolis, uh, which in Turkey today is called Pamukkale. There's a, a, a city called Laodicea, and there's the other one, Colossae. And those three smallish towns were so close together, shared a full-time worker. And there was a guy called Epaphras who got on his bike and pedaled between the three, well, probably not, but he went between the three places and uh, looked after the Christians in each of the three of them. You'll see at the end of Colossians, it, it talks about uh, the letter I've sent to Laodicea, make sure you read that one and then swap with them so that they can read this letter as well. And so they did a lot of things together, those three places, but they were very different towns. She's had enough already. There we go. Um, <laughs> Very different times. If you go to Hierapolis today, and uh, Anthony and I have been there, haven't we, on a trip to Turkey? That was brilliant. It's a very impressive ancient Roman city with all sorts of carvings and special, very expensive kind of a place. This is the Roman theatre in Hierapolis, and you can see, well, they expected more than 20 people for each performance. It was a big city, lots of plate people, uh, very expensive, lots of Roman troops garrisoned there, and that's what's still left today. If you go to Laodicea today, this is what you see, very wealthy, bustling merchant city in those days, good place to be. And uh, it was famous for its eye salve, it was famous for its, its special white cloth. There are all sorts of reasons for going to Laodicea. Colossae was, if you go and see Colossae today, that's it. <laughs> Just a mound that nobody has excavated in the last 2,000 years. 
because it's just not that important a place. There are people at the moment trying to raise money. It would only be about £200,000, apparently, to excavate Colossae. But nobody's doing it because eh, it's just not worth it. So it's a shame, really. Uh, but uh, there's probably not much in it, in it. We know it's been robbed down through the centuries, too. So Paul is writing a small group here. A group of people who probably became Christians thanks to Paul's time in Ephesus. He's in prison now, but he knows that because of the work he's done in Ephesus, you remember from our series in Acts last year that he was lecturing several hours a day in a lecture hall in the city, and all sorts of people as they came into the city would come to listen to Paul, and many of them would be converted. And then they'd go back to the places they came from all over that part of Turkey and take the message with them. And presumably the church in Colossae, Hierapolis, places like that, came from that. Maybe Epaphras. Epaphras was the guy who looked after all three churches. When Paul writes the letter to the Colossians, Epaphras is, is with him, wherever he is, in jail or wherever it was. But Epaphras spent most of his time in those three small towns. That was his parish. And Paul clearly feels very strongly about this small town of Colossae. And he wants to write them a very encouraging and important letter. And uh, you may have heard this too, but uh, it's because at this particular time, there are people coming into even that small place, a church in, in small back streets, Colossae, giving a very, very dangerous kind of method, message. A message which, if they believed it, would take them a million miles from being proper Christians. And so Paul wants the Colossian heresy, as theologians call it, to be exposed so that people aren't fooled by it any longer. And so in chapter 1, you've already looked at the prayer, the first 14 verses. Paul does uh, something in the, at the start of this letter that he often does in his letter. He says, hi guys, it's good to, to, to be in touch with you. Now let me first off, straight off the bat, tell you what I'm praying for you for. He often does that in many of his letters because he wants them to know just exactly how he feels about them. The good bits and the bad bits. And uh, even if they're doing well, he says, I'm praying for this to make them clear that, oh, there's more to come. He wants more. Oh, right, okay. We've not made it yet. There's more that God, Paul wants to, God to fill us with. And so he, he uses that as a way of just expanding horizons and making them think there is more that you can be doing. And he says to the Colossians, as you've probably noticed in the first bit of this, uh, your faith, your hope, and your love are just terrific. But I want God to do still more through you. Then, start of the bit that we're looking at tonight, he launches into a little poem. And it's a very carefully constructed poem. Why would you do that? You talk about what you're praying for, and then suddenly you start doing a poem about Jesus. Strange. And the third bit of the chapter after that, and that, that's where you start realizing why he's done that poem bit, because that's the point. <laughs> that's what it's really all about. So our job tonight is to look at the poem and a little bit of the point. You'll get the rest of it later on. But that's where we are. And if you look at the poem... We'll have a look, a proper look in a minute, but basically you see it's organised in two different verses which balance one another. And it uses the same words and the same phrases in each verse of the poem, but in a slightly different way. And it's to make a different point about Jesus. The first verse is talking about the greatness of Jesus over the whole of God's creation and how Jesus relates to all of the, 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 the wonders that you see around you the things that, 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 that hold the world and the universe together. DNA, nuclear power. How does Jesus relate to all of that? The first verse tries to talk about how Jesus is related to God's creation. And then the second verse talks about Jesus and the new creation. It talks about what's happened since Jesus died and rose again. The way in which a whole new family is started. 
The way in which, if anybody's a Christian, he's not just a human being, but he's a new creation. If anybody is a Christian, Paul said to the Corinthians, he is a brand new person inside. An old life has gone, a new life has come, and all of this is done by God. You're recreated from the inside out if you're a Christian. So Jesus is involved with the new creation as well. And as Paul says in the poem, the new creation isn't just miracles happening in human beings. It's about something cosmic that God's going to do one of these days that brings the whole universe to an incredible conclusion, brings it all back together the way that God planned to be right from the word go. So we'll have a look at that. In between those two verses, there's one little, uh, two verses of the poem, one little verse that talks about the fact that uh, Jesus is first in the universe and second that he's first in the church. And that's a kind of pivot verse, looking back to what he said in the first bit, saying, yeah, you think Jesus is pretty big because the, the ruler of the universe? Well, look around you. What God is doing, the wonder of the new creation, and you'll see that Jesus takes the preeminence, he's the boss, there too. Let's have a look anyway at that, that poem and how it all fits together. You'll see, if you look at that, just how, how uh, carefully balanced it is. The very first line, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Then you look at the second verse and you get the same phrase that I've got in red up there. The firstborn from among the dead. And in the first verse there it talks about uh, in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible. And down there you see um, uh, it talks about things on earth and things in heaven. Uh, thrones, powers, rulers and authorities up there. All things have been created through him and for him. And uh, down at the bottom, it talks about God reconciling to himself all things through Jesus. And all his fullness dwells in him. You see how the same ideas and the same words even are there in those two verses with that little verse in the middle. Uh, looking both ways, back towards what it's just been said about creation. He's before all things and him all things all together. And looking forward to what it's about to say about God's new creation. He's the head of the body, the church. And Tom Wright, um, who's written a lot about Colossians, says this. The poem we are now looking at is based on the different meanings of the Hebrew word for head. You see, the word head can mean lots of different things in Hebrew. can in English, if you think about it. Your head is not just this bit of you here. But if you talk about the head of an organization, that's a human being. If you talk about the heads on a tape recorder or something like that, that's different again. Uh, if you talk about being at the head of a queue, that's a slightly different meaning. And just as head can have all those different meanings in English, so it can in Hebrew. And although Paul's writing the, the poem in Greek, he plays on all those different words. Uh, Paul's cleverly exploring and exploiting some of them. Firstborn is one word. We'll have a close look at that one in a minute. And he talks about Jesus being supreme, and Wright translates that. Jesus is ahead of everything else in the universe. It talks about it being the head of the body. And it talks about the beginning. And that's a word that's, that's, that's the same word in Hebrew as head, too. So all of this is playing about language in the most intricate kind of way, holding it all together. And that's not just because Paul enjoys playing games with words. He's saying this whole thing is so intricately interconnected. You can't take anything away from Jesus' status without losing the whole picture. It all belongs together. One thing grows out of another. And Jesus is, is right at the center of everything that God is doing. Now, the reason he's saying this is because of the Colossian heresy. There are people coming to the church in Colossae saying, Jesus, yeah, he's okay. <laughs> 
But it's not the end, end of the whole matter. You people, oh, you've become Christians, have you? That's really good. You started a little church. Wonderful. Right, you're on the first kiddie step towards spirituality. You will come to realize that as well as your Jesus, there are all sorts of angels and supernatural beings. There are paths you can follow. There are recipes you can adopt. There are techniques you can put into your life. There are uh, feasts and, 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 and uh, special days that you can have. And with all of these things together, then you'll be really spiritual. But of course, you'll leave Jesus behind because he's just kind of like an introductory angel. And that's exactly what Paul is determined to knock on the head right from the start of Colossians. Jesus is not just somebody you can use and then leave on the side. Jesus is not just some minor angel that God uses to introduce people to Christianity. No, Jesus is the center of the whole thing. Not just in religious terms, but in terms of the whole universe as well. So let's have a look at those two verses of the poem then, shall we? First of all, the bit about Jesus and the creation. And it starts off, he is the image of the invisible God. And the word that Paul uses is the Greek word icon, E-I-K-O-N. It's the word that we get icon and iconic from. And it means that Jesus is an exact representation of what God is like. When you look at Jesus, you see God. There is no difference whatsoever. Jesus is the exact representation of it. It's a bit like what I've got going on here. Um, on my uh, computer at the moment, there is a picture of John Constable, the painter, and the words, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, if I turned around and finished playing an episode from The Simpsons up here, I'd be very worried. I'd have words to say to Richard afterwards. Because what's here is supposed to be an exact copy of what's up there. The two are exactly the same as one another. That's what's supposed to happen. Unfortunately, it is happening, so it's okay. John Constable, what's he doing on there? Well, actually, we were on holiday last week and we went to see Flatford Mill in Sutton, which was a place that Constable painted a lot and we saw lots of his big paintings there and so on. But this is the one drawing that we know that Constable actually made of himself. And that was a bit trickier. He could sit with his easel in front of Flatford Mill or the River Stour or whatever for days and just, just, just uh, draw it exactly right and make sure he got the colours the way he wanted it. But himself... How do you draw yourself? Kind of tricky, where do you start from? And so you've guessed, what he did was to make, put up a whole arrangement of mirrors. Some at the side, some behind him, some in front, capturing from different angles what he actually looked like. And with that, he was able to do that pencil drawing. And uh, he couldn't see himself, because none of us can. But he could see his image in the mirror. And that gave him a far better idea of what he looked like than if he tried to draw himself from memory. He couldn't have done it. And so what he saw in the mirror, he knew he could rely on because it was the image of who he was. And that's the way that uh, this poem starts out talking about Jesus. When you see Jesus, you see God. There is no better description of God than Jesus Christ himself. And that says something interesting, doesn't it? He's the image, he's the, the image of God, and he's the firstborn. Um, uh, over all creation. What does that actually mean? The firstborn over all creation. Well, these people on the left here, they're Jehovah's Witnesses, have got a very uh, definite idea about that. They say if it's Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that means somewhere back in time he was born. He's a created being. He can't be eternal. He's not the same as God because he's the firstborn. The Greek word prototokos means that. 
And so if Jesus was born, that means he's not on the same level as God himself. And if you look at the Jehovah's Witness website, it says things like this. He is the Savior, the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation. As a created being, he's not part of a trinity. The Father is greater than I am, said Jesus. John 14, 20. And actually, if you're worried about that verse, see me afterwards. I'll tell you what that means. But anyway, Jesus lived in heaven before coming to earth. And after his sacrificial death and resurrection, he returned to heaven. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so Jesus is not God. Jesus was born. Jesus is made. And this verse proves it. Well, it's ironic, really, that they use that verse coming from a hymn, which is trying to show just how great Jesus actually is. And in fact, if you look at the word that's used for firstborn, yep, you're absolutely right. Really, it does mean the firstborn in the family. And it's usually the firstborn who gets all of the importance in the family, isn't it? But uh, it also says in the Old Testament, once or twice, that God can make somebody the firstborn in the family, even if they're not. David, for instance, in Psalm 89, verse 27, God says about David, I will make him my firstborn. Now, David was not the biggest guy in his family. He was not the first one born. In fact, he was right at the end of the line. Do you remember when they came looking for the king? Who, the person who was going to be king? He wasn't even in the lineup. He was such a small, insignificant little shepherd boy that nobody thought, oh, we've got another, yeah, here he comes. Oh, he's going to be king. He's going to be king? God was making him the firstborn. And uh, God can make the firstborn uh, uh, because the firstborn is simply the person who has the most importance in the family. If you think of a traditional Jewish family, the firstborn, the eldest son, was usually the one who ruled the family, including his old mum, uh, when his father was away. He was in charge. He got the authority. And uh, when the father died, he was the one who inherited the lion's share of the property and decided how much his brothers and sisters got. He was the one whom the father consulted and was, was involved in all the father's business decisions. The firstborn was super important. But God can make somebody who's not the firstborn the firstborn. I have two grandchildren who are twins. And one of them is very proud of the fact that she was born a few seconds before the other one. There, she is the older sister. And Ella had better bear that in mind. And uh, I found this great verse in Genesis the other day that I shared with my beloved granddaughter. And uh, it's a prediction that's made when Jacob and Esau were uh, making, giving trouble to their mother. They hadn't been born yet, but they were fighting one another inside there. And God said, the elder will serve the younger. I showed this to Jess, and she was not exactly blessed by it. <laughs> but God can do that. Jacob, the younger one, became the firstborn, as it were, in that family. And God wanted it to be that way. So the, the word firstborn was used as a phrase just to say the most important one. And so if Jesus is the firstborn over all of God's creation, that means he is the one to whom God has deputed his authority over the whole of his creation. Jesus is not born himself. We see that in John chapter 1, don't we? He was there in the beginning. He was with God, and he was God. But he's the one to whom the Father has given authority over all creation. Then, the first, to just to finish our talking about this verse, because Abigail's had it already, um, we've got, we, he says three things about uh, all things. And he says, first of all, all things were created in him. Then he says, all things were created through him. And finally, in this verse, he says, all things were created for him. 
Whereas Jesus' relationship to creation is that everything was created in him. That means it all starts with him. He was the planner. He was, he was involved in putting the whole scheme of creation together. When you look at the way it's all so carefully designed, when you look at how uh, this planet, which is a minor planet in a small solar system, in, in a very um, unspectacular galaxy, is nonetheless the place where intelligent life has, uh, uh, has come about, a place that's uh, carefully shielded from uh, meteorite attacks and all sorts of other outer space disasters uh, to give space for human life to develop. When you look at human life itself, how the four little letters of DNA can create such incredible variety in, well, just all the people I'm looking at down here and all other forms of life. It's an absolutely incredible system. And it was created in Jesus. Never doubt the wisdom of Jesus because he knows stuff that you'll never learn. It's created through him, though, as well. And that means it's all done by him. It was his power that made it all happen. And John chapter 1 says, doesn't it, using exactly the same phrase, everything was made through him and without him there was nothing made that was made. Jesus is responsible for everything in creation and he's the purpose of it as well. It was created for him and so it all ends with him as well. And so this is looking forward to the second verse where Paul's going to say one of these days God is going to bring the whole of his creation back together and it's all going to be reconciled in, yes, you've guessed it, Jesus. It's all heading towards him as well. And in him, it will all come together and, and take its place. Now, this is the middle verse uh, that uh, points the thing round from talking about God's creation to talking about where we are now if we're Christians in God's church. And it says, basically, Jesus is the head of God's physical creation. He's before thing, all things, and in him all things hold together. And on top of that, he is the head of the body, the church. He has the same importance in the spiritual world as well. And uh, you might see them looking around at one another when this is read out in a church in Colossae, thinking, Jesus is the head of this church. There's only 25 of us here this morning, and we've got nobody to play the organ because Mrs. So-and-so had a bad cold. Ah, Jesus is interested in this place. And yes, that's right. The same power that rules the heavens also rules your little church, <laughs> at least if he's allowed to. Never think of Great Parks as a small and insignificant place compared to much larger churches and enterprises that you only see on the internet or read about in the newspapers. Great Parks is important to God. Every church where people are worshipping Jesus and they're held together by the Holy Spirit, every church matters to Jesus infinitely because he's the head of the body the church. And so Paul goes on to talk about the wonder of that. And this is the other bit of the poem, isn't it? Jesus and the new creation. He says, he's the first beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Well, we've talked about the firstborn verse. We'll have a, a look at the, uh, something else he says about it. He goes on to say this, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. God's fullness, we need to have a look at what that means. And then finally he says, whether things on earth or things in heaven, it doesn't make any odds. Jesus is in charge of a whole lot by making peace through, oh, sorry, it's gone too far, making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Well, we'll get to that phrase in a minute. But first of all, let's look at this fullness thing. 
You might remember, well, you guys won't because you're far too young, but 40, 40, 40 years ago, young people, I remember it well, on Sundays anyway. What am I doing here? What did I come upstairs? No, no, no. But, uh, you know, 40 years ago, there was a movement that was very excited about called the New Age. Started around about 1980, and it claimed that the world was going to be transformed in the year 2000. Well, if that happened, I didn't really notice. But new powers were supposed to be all over the place. The world was going to come together in peace and harmony. There was going to be no war, no, 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 no fighting, no poverty, no Donald... No, I didn't say that. No, but it was just going to be an absolutely perfectly peaceful world. And the new age was the way into it. And uh, the book uh, which started the whole thing off called... Uh, um, a, oh, I forgot the name. There you go. But uh, Marlon Ferguson's book about Aquarius said, this is the dawn of the age of Aquarius. God is going to shower down on the earth new streams of spiritual powers and it won't be Christianity. She said, Christianity has been the big religion of the last 2,000 years. That's because that was the Piscean age, a very hard, legalistic, a male chauvinist, uh, dogmatic kind of age. And now we're going to see the age of Aquarius break out. An age in which people are just going to come together in peace and harmony. Well, as I say, it's not really happening too much, but it started all kinds of different things. And uh, various therapies and ideas and ancient religions that hadn't been practiced for hundreds of years sprang into life. And people started looking for all kinds of different routes into spirituality. And the idea was, no one of these things is the answer, but any of these things are okay. So you build your own package. And you can be listening to lectures from one particular guru and practicing the exercises recommended by another, going on weekends with another. And all of these spiritual wonderful things are coming together in one to create the age of Aquarius. And there were these big exhibitions, the festivals of mind, body, and spirit, and things like that. Here's one in Suffolk. Here's one in, I think it's Texas or somewhere, somewhere, somewhere else anyhow. And uh, these... Uh, exhibitions are still happening all over the world, bringing together in little exhibition stands all kinds of different things. I used to be part of a Christian team that used to go and work at the Festival of Muscle, Body and Spirit in London every year. And uh, you were okay, you were welcome, because Christianity was a spiritual path. Not a very good one, but hey, it was a spiritual path. So they would let us go in and, and be part of the debate. And we used to talk to all kinds of interesting people in there. I've, 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 I used to go around and try and get plants to talk to me. They never did. And uh, I was given a little uh, cardboard pyramid to put my razor blades under so it would resharpen overnight. Didn't happen. You can see that from my chin. But, um, you know, there were all, all kinds of interesting things happening. Rebirthing, witchcraft of various varieties, pyramids, crystals, all sorts of stuff. And uh, I had some interesting I remember one morning I turned up and there was nobody to look after the children of the exhibitors. So I spent the entire morning telling Bible stories to the children of witches. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. They'd never heard anyone before, so it was all new stuff to them. It was brilliant. But, uh, you know, the whole new age, here's a diet that somebody has tried to draw of how it all fits together. And if you look at that in detail, you'll see that Jesus is a small part of the whole thing, but a very, very small part. And uh, Colossians says, no, this is not the case. And you might have wondered why on the opening slide of this, this talk, uh, I had this picture. This is because this is a picture I took last Tuesday, was it, Andrew? <laughs> in Framlingham in Suffolk, where there is a medieval church. When you walk through the doorway, the first thing you see is this massive mural that they painted on the wall in the 14th century. And it shows Jesus dying on the cross. But can you see those hands round either side? And God the Father standing behind him, holding him there. 
almost embracing him because the son is not just dying in a horrible fashion. He's actually doing the father's will. And the father is there with him in that. Yes, I know that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he went through the emptiness of being without that father's presence for the first time since before the foundation of the world. But God was there in Jesus. And above the, 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 the head of Jesus in the, the uh, um, picture there, you can probably see a sort of white blur. Apparently that was once a dove, but it's been rubbed out a little bit. The Holy Spirit is there hovering over the head of Jesus as well. And what this mural is saying is Jesus is central to all of God's plans. Behind the cross stands God the Father. Over Jesus and everything he does stands the Holy Spirit. And it's all there. It's all together. Now, I think that's important because today the word spirituality is being used in a more and more vague way. It means basically motivation. Living your best life, thinking of, of, of what you want to be and then going for it, going for it with all you've got. And Adam Peaty, for instance, who is a, a great swimmer and is doing amazing things at the College Games, was interviewed um, on TV last week just when I was thinking about this very point. And he came up with a quote which uh, just sums up the way that people tend to think. He said this, spiritually, I'm in a pretty good place. My motivation is high. And so for him, the height of spirituality is having the determination to win a race. That's not what spirituality is. Spirituality means being aware of the fact that there is a God out there who is real and who loves you more than anything else, who put you together and who wants to be part of your life. And if not part of your life, then you will never know what spirituality really is all about. But we made spirituality as a do-it-yourself, a bolt-on assembly of bits and pieces, and that was the danger in Colossae. That was what the Colossian heresy was trying to do. Have your own do-it-yourself experience of God, then you'll be fine. You can't do that. It's all centered, says the Apostle Paul in Jesus. And uh, he said, I sums that up at the end of the whole poem, doesn't he, by saying this, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, we've heard so much about blood, the blood of Jesus and the cross of Jesus, that those words probably don't hit us with any kind of shock. But they would have been quite shocking and deliberately shocking when Paul wrote them. Because he's been talking about the wonders of creation and the whole universe holding together. He's been talking about somebody who has brought us back into relationship with God, somebody who's higher than anybody else. And he starts talking about blood and nails and the cross. And the cross was a stark reality of life to people in, in the day when he was writing this. And so Paul is saying, you know, Jesus isn't just some sort of spiritual guru floating off on a cloud somewhere. He's somebody who actually came down here. And in this hard, brutal, physical world, paid all the dues necessary to set us free and begin God's plan for reconciliation. So what's all of this about? We, we've done the poem. The final thing is the point, isn't it, at the end of it? So let's just take a minute to talk about that. What is the point? Well, as I say, uh, most of it is in your next passage, but we've got verses 21, 22, 23 tonight. And I think in those three verses, Paul hammers home why he's given this little poem about Jesus by saying three things. First of all, remember what you were. That's the message of verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And the second thing is, Look at what you are. 
That's verse 22. Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And the third thing in verse 23, realize what you must be. If you've looked back and seen what you've been, if you've looked at what God has given you here and now, the next thing to do is look forward and say, what does God want me to be? And uh, Paul says, you have been reconciled, you have been made one of God's family, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It's the same gospel that you were saved by. It's the same gospel that goes all over the ancient world. It's that you can't change it. You can't alter it. And it's the same gospel which I serve. I didn't think it up. I'm just a servant of it. It's far bigger than any of us, this gospel. Don't change any of it. Let's just look at those three things very quickly in the, the last couple of minutes we've got here. Remember what you were. And Paul says three things. First of all, you're enemies. You are hostile to God. The word means willfully estranged. You are alienated from God. You've chosen to make yourself an enemy of God. And that's what we all are from the moment we're born, aren't we? The philosopher Francis Schaeffer said that we're, we are, suffer from a fourfold alienation. And uh, I'll see what, I'll get to that in a moment. The second thing he talks about is being mentally hostile, enemies to God in our mind. We think in a non-God kind of a way. We exclude him from our, our, our thoughts and our considerations. And that's because, he says, our deeds are habitually evil. We're people who live in evil works. And the more you do wrong, the more it sets your mind like cement to go in the opposite direction. That fourfold alienation thing, let me just fill in on that one. Schaefer says, first of all, we're alienated from God. But when you're alienated from God, when you don't have the relationship you're supposed to have with him, you can't have that relationship with other people as well. And that's why there's so much strife and bitterness and family breakup and political disagreement and war and conflict in the world. We're alienated from one another as well because of turning our back on God. We're alienated from creation too. And you just need to look at the mess we're in with global warming, with the way that the environment is, 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 is uh, beyond repair in some aspects now and on its legs and others. And you've got to say, well, the mess we've made of God's world is pretty massive. We've been estranged from the creation that we were supposed to be the stewards of. And the final thing is we're alienated from ourselves. We don't understand ourselves anymore. We don't know who we are. We've got a narrow grasp of our own identity and our mental health problems are rocketing and rocketing in this country as we turn our back more and more on the God who wants to bring us all together. So Paul says, remember what you were? You don't want to go back there, do you? Second, look at what you are. And he says here, first of all, you're reconciled. God has brought you back into a friendship with himself. And the aim of that is not just so that you can be all nice and warm and cuddly in his presence. It's so that you can be something that you've never been before. And he uses three words about it. The first two, holy and without blemish. Well, they're the words that are used in the Old Testament again and again for the sacrifices that are fit to be put on God's altar. Holy and without blemish means there is nothing wrong with you at all. But sacrifices don't do much. Lambs and cows don't have much of a mind of their own. You do because you're a human being. And so Paul uses another word as well. Sacrifices don't choose their own conduct. But as somebody once said, the problem with it being a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, is it keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> and so he uses a third word, irreproachable. 
God wants to work in you so that you're holy and without blemish and nobody can point the finger at you and say, there is something wrong with you. There is something you've not done. There is something you shouldn't think. There's something you shouldn't say. God wants to bring you to a state where nobody can point the finger any longer because you just radiate the beauty and the glory and the winsomeness of the Lord Jesus himself. Then there's the third thing. Realize what you must be. And Paul says there are two things to do. First of all, continue in your faith. And second, do not move from your hope. Do you remember how he started the whole chapter by talking about, you're great, you Colossians, because you're big in faith, you're good in hope, and you're wonderful in love. Faith, hope, and love. And these are three points that Paul often preached about. You find them all over the New Testament, don't you? Especially in that passage he in weddings all the time in 1 Corinthians 13. By these three things, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And there's three things are Paul's benchmarks for what real Christianity looks like. He doesn't talk about love here, and I have my own theory about why, but he says the other two things you've got to have in place if you're going to keep on going towards this holy, blameless, irreproachable you that God wants to see. Continue in your faith. Do not move from your hope. Do you remember, we did a series on Ephesians just before this, and Ephesians was a letter written about the same time as this one, and uh, to the Ephesians, Paul said... Uh, you have to put on the whole armour of God. One part of that was the Kaligai, the sandals. And a soldier would wear light sandals, but sandals with studs in them, a bit like football boots, so that whenever you were attacked by somebody else, you would not be pushed over easily. You had a firm footing. And Paul says the, 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 this represents the gospel of peace. And the gospel of peace, we said at that point, makes us free and firmly planted, ready for anything. And Paul's saying, you have been given a faith which is incredible. Accept no substitute. Don't go away from it because it's the best, firmest foundation. Stay on that foundation. Because if you don't, things happen. This is another of our holiday pictures. Sorry, this is the last one definitely tonight. But this is from Dunwich, which is a, a town in the north of Suffolk that Dante's wanted to see for some years. I always wanted to go there because I remember, I remember when I was about six, reading a copy of the Meccano magazine. If anybody remembers that, you're as old as I am. But anyhow, it was a, a, a great magazine for boys, and it had articles about all sorts of things. And I had this, this article, I remember, about a town that was slowly disappearing into the sea. And that's Dunwich. Dunwich has been on the edge of the North Sea for many centuries. And in the Middle Ages, it was pretty large. But in 1268, the mouth of the harbour at Dunwich silted up, and they were never able to make it free again. And the town gradually lost its reputation. It didn't repair its defences. And the sea started to eat away at Dunwich. And every few decades, there's a massive storm and another bit of it disappears. And if you look at a map of where the town used to be, most of it's gone now. Dunwich has only 100 inhabitants left. As you walk along the beach, um, sometimes after there's been one of those storms, you can see all kinds of things sticking out from the old town, even in the old days, that was what fascinated me when I was six. They said you could walk along the beach and you could see human bones sticking out of the cliff, you know, because the churchyard disappeared into the sea as well. And uh, uh, walking along there now, you see lots of signs saying cliff falls are frequent and deadly because it's just being eaten away. And what was once firm and solid and reliable, it's not any longer, it's just gradually the way. In fact, this is one thing you'll find yeah, don't worry, I'm nearly done. This is one thing you'll find in, in, in the churchyard that is there still, and that is the one uh, um, flying buttress that was in one of the old churches that disappeared into the sea. 
They rescued that dude from the sea and set it up in the churchyard. But the whole of the rest of the church, which is a big church, it's gone. They'll never get it back. And all that we know about is bits and pieces lying about. And what Paul is saying here is very much the same. You've been given a strong, firm foundation. Don't let anybody eat it away. And he says the same thing to the Corinthians when he talks about the way in which all of the children of Israel got out of Egypt. They all escaped through the river. Uh, uh, they, they, they all were fed by God in, in the desert. They were all led amazingly by the pillar of cloud, by the pillar of the, the fire by night. And yet, God wasn't pleased with all of them. And a lot of them died in the desert. And Paul says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So he says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Jesus is the center of everything in creation and in the new creation too. And the more we build on what we've already received and stand firm, the more the faith, the hope, and the love will abound and will become holy, blameless, and irreproachable before him. Let's just pray before um, uh, Rihanna comes back and does her last bit of magic. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for the chance to look at this incredible passage, so short but so packed, and just have a look at some of the wonderful things that you've done for us through the Lord Jesus. Help us to learn what we need to learn from it and take it with us, because we ask it for your namesake. Amen.